Let me invite you to stand now and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. So we begin a new series in Isaiah, but we're not doing our typical beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. We're beginning in Isaiah 61, and we're, we're doing that for two reasons. One, I want to I make you mad and frustrate you, um, because although we preach these consecutive passages, guess, guess who didn't do that? Jesus and the Apostles. So let's not make a rule where the Scripture doesn't. But second reason, and I'm kidding about the frustrating part, second reason, this is where Jesus begins. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah, you heard that read in Luke 4, and where did he start? Right here in Isaiah 61, and follow along, I'll read verses 1 through 7. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Lord, how we desire that everlasting joy. So take us on a journey this morning that as we look deep into the good news, you would bless each of us and transform our lives and that you would get the praise in the glory we ask, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We love a good rescue story, don't we? Have you seen that movie that, uh, I think it came out in August, maybe Ron Howard movie, uh, 13 Lives. This is uh, about the Soccer players, the children and their coach who were rescued out of that cave in Thailand. They go in to explore the cave and, and they get flooded. In. Great movie if you don't like tight spaces or underwater things. It's a, it's a good one to see. But we love rescue stories, don't we? We love to read about the Navy SEALs going out, tip of the spear, and rescuing American hostages. We love that. And I want to offer you this, that we so connect 
with any rescue story, any story where people are helpless to save themselves and someone comes, we connect with those stories because it connects with our story. We are those who have been rescued. We are those who can't rescue ourselves, and Jesus comes, and that's what Isaiah 61 is about. He rescues sinners. He sets us free, and that good news transforms us and affects our lives and helps us as we navigate the gloom and doom of this current age. It's good news, and we're starving for that good news, aren't we? And this good news that's talked about here is something that motivates and moves us to live a certain kind of life and have a certain kind of identity. And that's what we're going to look at this morning from Isaiah 61. And partly we're starting here because this is where Jesus starts. But we're also starting here because if you notice, Isaiah is a pretty long book. And if you're going to travel through a long book, you need an anchor. You need a focal point. You need somewhere that no matter how lost you get there in chapter 21 and 22, and you need a place that anchors you. And Isaiah 61 is really that place because it tells us about our rescue story, and it tells us about our rescuer and Christ, the Redeemer. And we can always set, as it were, no matter how, how confusing Isaiah gets, no matter how dark, Isaiah has a lot of dark judgment uh, that's foretold, we can set our compasses to this chapter, Isaiah 61, and we will be regrounded again in the wonder of who our Redeemer is. And so, First thing I'm going to show you here in the first half of this passage is our need for good news. We need good news. How starved are we for good news? We are retelling, still retelling, this story of a, a little league guy getting hit with the pitch and then he hugs the pitcher. Who, who has seen that? Just about everybody, right? Right? That's how starved we are for good news. We will look for it and find it anywhere. And here, we're told the best news, the greatest news ever told that we are rescued. Look here in verse 1. The Spirit of the living God is upon me because He has anointed me. And then we read about seven things here that the one who is anointed does. And Christ, you might remember, just means anointed one. Christ is the anointed one of God. This is 800 years before Christ would uh, come to this earth in the incarnation. And Isaiah is looking down supernaturally, inspired by God, looking down into the future and telling us and telling God's people then of the one who would come. And what would Jesus do? The first thing here, to bring good news to the poor. To bring good news to the poor. Now, who are the poor? The poor are those who don't have resources. They can't help themselves. To be poor is not to have any options. You can't 
do anything because you don't have the resources to gather to have choices. And so the good news is of such an extent in the scale, in the scope of it, is that it reaches those with no options. The least get to receive this news. Now, I want to tell you the truth. Because, see, if we're going to enjoy the good news, we have to embrace the bad news first. And the bad news is you and I are poor. We are spiritually poor. We do not have the resources to muster, to correct our situation with God. And this is the exact person, not the one who has it all together, who Jesus brings good news to. Not only does Jesus bring the good news to the poor, but he has been sent to bind up the brokenhearted. Oh, what good news. Have you been brokenhearted lately? Well, not lately. I, I, I watched the news last Friday, but I haven't seen the news lately. To be brokenhearted is to have these expectations that aren't met. To see evil triumphing in the world to see people headed in the wrong direction, all these things, it breaks our heart to see people hurt and sinned against. And the good news is we have a Savior who binds up the brokenhearted, who doesn't ignore them, who doesn't heap on the hurt, but instead scoops up the brokenhearted. Then look at this, to proclaim liberty to to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You know, liberty is only good news if you realize we are captive to the power of sin, that it is part and parcel of being a Christian. You ha- if you are a Christian and you've trusted in Christ and what he did on the cross to save and rescue you, part of believing that is understanding that you are in need of rescue, that you are captive, that you are in prison. And here Christ has freed us. He's given us liberty. He's opened the prison to those who are bound. And what does he do? Not only is he proclaiming good news, but part of the proclamation, look in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And this pairing together of the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance, the year of the Lord's favor, that's the jubilee year. And you might remember this, it's back in Leviticus 25, every 50th year, uh, the debts would be forgiven and there would be this great economic reset. And yes, I've been checking to see if there's a church loan forgiveness program and, and I, haven't, I haven't heard that it came out yet. But the idea was God gave Israel, and you know, they disobeyed on this point. He gave them this reset every 50 years because sometimes what would happen is people would go into debt slavery and they knew it wasn't forever. And it was meant to point Israel, it wasn't just an economic thing, it was meant to point and to show them of the great forgiveness that would come. Not every 50 years, but permanently. Through Christ, there would be a great reset, not financially, but spiritually. And the favor of God 
would come upon his people, a favor which he could not extend because of sin. And it's paired with the day of vengeance of our God because we want justice. We want right to prevail. You can't just have the year of Jubilee. You must have right triumphing as well. This is how perfect the way of God is. And then look at this. Part of the good news is to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn what is mourning but an emotional response to, to the losses of life. It could be death. It could be something significant that we have lost or that we miss. And here, part of the good news is that mourning is going to be answered. And in verse 3, we're introduced to this language. It's, it's not this. Instead, it's this. And look at this parallel, because you're going to see it again in verse 7. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Are you feeling a little faint these days? And here the imagery is that God takes through his anointed one a garment and he puts it on us. And it's a garment to the praise of his wondrous grace. And instead of being faint and fatigued and weak, he puts this on us that our strength would be restored and our passion would run after him. This is what the good news does for us. We need this good news. And this good news transforms us. So I want to tell you a prerequisite for enjoying this good news is you have to embrace the bad news about yourself. And and what is that bad news except that we're sinners separated from God. What is sin? Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Doing things, I'll translate that, doing things, believing things, acting in a way that doesn't please him. It could be shaking your fist at God. It could be apathy at God. It could be our thoughts and attitudes. It could be our actions. This is all sin, and and because of sin, We need to be rescued. We are under the power of sin apart from Christ. And we need this good news. So a couple couple weeks ago, I decided to do the COVID thing. Um, I'm real, I'm just kind of real slow and I hadn't done it yet. So I thought I'd kind of join that that club. And you know, it's an when you're testing, you know, you got the little swab and you're really getting in there. And the thing is, you know, the news of the positive test changed things, didn't it? It was bad news, and the bad news meant, there goes my week, there goes my schedule. And then the opposite happened, took me eight days, but I finally got a, got a negative test. And I tell you that to say we're living in an age where news changes and transforms us. 
And if you will embrace the good news of who Christ is, and to be able to do that, you have to come through the door of your need for Him, and that we need this good news. And what does that mean in this passage? That means that we are poor, we are brokenhearted, we are captive to sin and our desires, we are, as it were, in prison, we are bound, we need God's forgiveness. Verse 2, we need His justice and we are mourning. If you accept that about yourself, that in some ways all of that is true about us, then the gospel really means something to you. You know, heaven isn't good if there's no hell. Salvation isn't great unless we have been rescued from something really bad. And so I encourage you, instead of shying away from what the Bible says is true about us, embrace it instead, because it makes the good news that much better. And that news transforms us, and we're going to look at that next here in the second half of the passage, how we are transformed by this good news that's proclaimed to us and told to us and brought to us. Through the, purpose, uh, through the person of Christ. And the first thing we'll look at is really this good news. This news changes us and transforms who we are. So we already got a hint of that. Instead of a faint spirit, we have the garment of praise. But look at this in the second half of verse 3. Who do we become because of this good news? We become oaks of righteousness. And that is a transformation, isn't it, that has happened. We go from being poor, brokenhearted, captive, in prison, bound, in need of God's forgiveness, to becoming oaks of righteousness. And, and this is an image we can work with because we know oak trees are strong, right? Did you see the battle down at the uh, north end of the parking lot and that hollow oak tree uh, that had to come down and... And boy, it took some doing to get through that, that tree, even though it was hollowed out and rotten inside. It, those oak trees are strong. And this is the transforming power of the good news, the spiritual strength that we have. We're called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. You know what that's like when you put your tomato plants in? You show a concern and a protection over those tomato plants, don't you? Because you have set those in place, and you don't want all that hard work to go to waste. And this is an image of God, the great creator and gardener of the cosmos. He cares for us. We are his concern. He keeps us. He protects us. We're his planting, and he has planted his people here on this earth and through the redemptive and transforming power of this good news, we become oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why does this happen? Look at the end of verse 3. Why does this happen? That he may be glorified. All to God's glory 
that we together hear this good news and are rescued and saved. So the good news that's announced that Christ brings, it transforms us in terms of who we are, but it also transforms us in terms of what we do and how we conduct ourselves. Look here in verse 4. We're told they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, part of what happens in Isaiah is that Babylon comes in and, and is foretold to come in and destroy Jerusalem and cart off God's people into exile. And what we're told here is there will be an end to the exile. We're told there's an end to the exile prior to it beginning. And Isaiah foretells, uh, uh, prophesies this, foretelling us what will happen and how God's people are meant to be repairers, not people who tear down. You remember back to uh, 2014, Ferguson, Missouri, what happened there. You know, I lived in Missouri four years when I attended seminary, not far from Ferguson. And you remember what happened. Michael Brown was shot and the, the grand jury refused to indict the police officers. And Michael Brown's stepfather met with protesters. And what did he say? Do you remember that in 2014? He said, burn it down. Burn it down. Now, we can understand that these are words from, the, from a heart of grief and, and the emotion of the moment, but, th but that had significance. And Ferguson and St. Louis, let me tell you, still hasn't recovered. Still hasn't recovered. Some eight years later, God's people are not called to say, burn it down. No. What are we called to? That wherever there's brokenness, wherever there's problems, we're not called to tear it down. You know, we live in such an angry culture and such ugly and terrible things are said to people, and my mama, she taught me, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? Where, was, where is that these days? I don't know. But you and I were called to build up, to raise up, to repair. And when we do that, when we step into these situations where people are angry and yelling at each other, when we step into those situations, we're, we're being salt and light, aren't we? And we are building up rather than tearing down. We don't need any more tearing down in this world. And when the world is burning it down, what are Christians called to? Let's repair. Let's build up. Let's be salt and light because this good news has transformed not only who we are, but what we're doing. So we're out there. We're building up. We're raising up. We're repairing. And what's the result? Look in verse 5. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. Let me explain this for you. This is the reversal of an exile. 
The exact opposite happens in the exile. Israel goes off to Babylon and they serve Babylon and they tend their flocks. This is a reversal brought about by the transforming grace of God and the transforming good news and the message. Not only is this, a, we could say this is a reversal of the exile, it's also what? It's a reversal of what happened in Egypt. God is in redemptive history, connecting the dots for us. Whereas Israel was, were, they were slaves in Egypt serving the Egyptians. Now in the victory of Jesus Christ, the role has been reversed. And God's people are triumphing. And look at this in verse 6. I mean, can we say this is just a very weird verse that doesn't seem to belong in Isaiah, but would seem to be something you would read in Hebrews. Listen to this, verse 6. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. There is such an incredible reversal in God's people's lives because of the good news of the gospel and the victory of the one who was anointed <clears throat> to bring the good news. Such victory that the relationship between God and his people is completely restored and reconciled and they become priests. Look at verse 6. They shall speak of you as the ministers of God. I mean, this sounds like New Testament language, doesn't it? That's why I say it, it's strange, but it belongs here because Isaiah is looking into the future and seeing God's people transformed by the power of this good news that they are in perfect relationship with the Lord. So much so. Look at verse 6, the end of verse 6. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. A complete picture of victory that would be so hard to grasp when you're being carted off into slavery and exile. And then in verse 7, so we're talking about how the, tr how the good news transforms not only who we are but what we do. And look at what God does here in verse 7. It's this language that points us back to verse 3. Instead of this, you get this. Instead of your shame, verse 7, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. You know what a double portion is? Did you see some of those pieces of cake out there in the foyer? Did you get a double portion piece? Double portion is more than enough. To have more than enough is a significant message of the Scripture that the good news gives us exactly what we need and our cup overflows with the grace and the mercy of what God has given us. So much so, what did they possess at the end of verse 7? Everlasting joy. Oh, that's pretty good, isn't it? I want that. In fact, it harkens back to a sermon I preached several weeks ago that I'm sure no one remembers. 
Psalm 4, 7. Psalm 4, 7. Do you remember this? You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Do you remember that? We talked about the, the, your, your vision of the good life and what the good life is all about. And each culture and time period has a vision of the good life. And what David is saying as he writes Psalm 4, he's saying, I've got more joy with you than with any measure of success that the world can give or offer. That's the same idea here at the end of verse 7, back to Isaiah 61, that the good news, which we are so desperate for, comes to us and transforms who we are and what we do, and we possess everlasting joy. That's the Christian's end point. Everlasting joy is ours only through the good news that our Savior brings us. Isaiah's very name means God saves. And when you are saved, and when you embrace not just the good news about yourself, but the bad parts too, it is transformative to who we are. We become oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And we go out in this world where everyone wants to burn it down and we rebuild it in Jesus' name for his glory. And we do so with everlasting joy. Let's pray together. Lord, how thankful we are. How thankful we are that you have rescued us and sent good news to us through Jesus Christ. We are thankful and we pray, may we leave this place as a rebuilder and repairer. Give us opportunities to step into the devastations that have been wrought in our society that we might, in the face of hatred, love people. In the face of anger, express patience. And in the face of depression, despair, we might offer true hope. And we pray that by so doing, we would enjoy everlasting joy that you and only you can give. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.